0: Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor.
1: Well, welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next two hours are devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, my bride's favorite saying, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I'm Eldon Taylor, at least I was when I checked last, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, and our chat room monitor, Andrea, last week I called her a sidekick, and I got kicked, await you there now. You can log on by going to ProvocativeEnlightenment.com forward slash chat. We do have a wonderful chat room with some truly great folks that join us every week. So, Ravinder, tell us all about it, please.
2: You are in a good mood today, aren't you? And you're definitely Eldon Taylor still. I check regularly. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yes, of course, the chat room is always a. Place for some scintillating scintillating that's not the right word. Exciting conversation, very stimulating. That was the word I was looking for. My brain isn't working today, but the chat room is working perfectly. So do come join us at provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat.
1: All right. Does it work usually?
2: No. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <I couldn't>
1: resist. <laughs> Sorry. All right. In today's spotlight we turn our attention to the nature of personal risk-taking as it relates to our belief in God or a divine creator or Aristotle's Unmoved Mover or whatever you are comfortable with. The question is, does one's belief in God lead to excessive risk-taking? I posted a study this week on Facebook that suggested indeed it does. The article title states the conclusion to this study. Thinking of God makes people bigger risk-takers. Quoting Science Daily, lead researcher Daniela Kapoor of Stanford University Graduate School of Business stated, quote, the fact that reminders of God are so ubiquitous suggests that this effect may impact a large number of people. Close quote. Many previous studies have indicated that religiosity and participation in religious activities are associated with decreases in people's engagement in risky behaviors like substance abuse and gambling. But Kapoor and her colleagues noticed that the risks examined in these studies tended to share a negative moral component. Now, the article added this provoking piece to the conclusion, quote, Additional findings indicate that people who were reminded of God perceived less danger in various risky behaviors than participants who were not reminded of God. And they reported more negative feelings toward God when they lost their potential winnings in a risk-related game, suggesting that they had expected God to protect them from losing the money and were disappointed in the outcome. Close quote. Okay, I read the article, and I made this quip with my post. Perhaps I'm biased, but I don't think it makes a bigger risk taker out of me. Will I take that back? This past week I have given this much thought, and the fact is, I will often turn things over to a feeling, a sort of inner guidance, and dismiss or act on a stimuli with this thought. Thy will be done. My initial reaction to the article was based on the years that I practiced criminalistics, and most of this time I was a glowing agnostic willing to challenge any believer. I was also, obviously as any one of you knows who has read my work, both cognitively dissonant and willfully blind. However, when I finally woke up, had my epiphany, my life changed. Still, when I think back... I was a fan of kismet. What will be will be. And I often took risks. So, is there a difference between kismet and God? Except maybe in who we blame. Do those who believe in God take greater risks? Well, we know this. In the name of God, war is declared and always has been. If not a God, then the God's. But Godhood is always involved in war. Why? Could it be that this motive, the motive of divine service, is what it takes for men and women to lay down their lives? I think I was about 14 when I started figuring out the control nature of religion and how both church and state use God for this purpose. We are trained. No, I'll take that back. We are inculcated with the notion of God and country. Most of the world is, in fact, divided more by religious ideologies than anything else. But in the name of religion, we can become deaf to cries of pain, immune to unfair practices, blind to suffering. And, well, Robert Lang said it best when he wrote in his marvelous book, The Politics of Experience, The condition of alienation, of being asleep, of being unconscious, of being out of one's mind is the condition of the normal man. Society highly values its normal man. It educates children to lose themselves and to become absurd and thus to be normal. Normal men have killed perhaps 100 million of their fellow men in the last century. We are not able even to think adequately about the behavior that is at the annihilating edge. But what we think is less than what we know. What we know is less than what we love. What we love is so much less than what there is. And to that precise extent, we are so much less than what we are. Your thoughts on this one, Ravinder?
2: Oh, I think that quote is absolutely perfect. I mean, I think I tend to feel that way more and more as I get older too. I'm just more aware of how much we give up of ourselves in order to participate in society or not participate, as the case may be. But the earlier research that you... I mean, the stuff you were talking about... About people who uh, religious people being more likely to take risks. I mean, I found that fascinating because I would have thought the opposite because you tend to think of religious people as being conservative well, and what... conservative as being cautious. But as you expanded upon it, it's like, yeah, you know, I think yeah. you're right. We do it... often turn things over. The you more have to faith remember that, have... that
1: most studies have indicated that religious people were you know more conservative in the sense of the moral component so they're less likely to use drugs or less likely to Mm -hmm. to you know imbibe heavily in alcohol and other substances but when it comes to this idea that god is looking out for me they are greater risk-takers.
2: To do God's service, the things that people will do, and that does make sense. I, I found it fascinating.
1: Okay, every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week our guest was Professor Anthony Falakowski, and we discussed his research in book Higher Reality Therapy. And he wrote, I bought his book right after the show and it really is packed with good insights. I know it will help me get unstuck. Mark wrote, I found Professor Anthony Falakowski to be a pleasant guest with a positive sense of life. It's difficult to know where he stands philosophically except for bits and pieces based on the show. One thing that stood out for me is that it sounds as if he believes in some form of epistemological relativism. That is based on a remark he made, in that each philosophical system has its own logic, and thus there is no way to judge one from the other. In other words, there is no way to judge the merits of one philosophical system over another, except perhaps either through one's subjectivism or by reaching group consensus, an approach he said he uses in moral discussions he has with his class. Well, I didn't get the same thing out of his remark, Mark, but I can see why you might. That said, remember, a proposition can be both logical and untrue of the real world simultaneously. Emily wrote, your show with Professor falakowski was wonderful. Now last week our spotlight challenged all of you to find a cause you could get behind and act on. Pat wrote, very thought-provoking show, and I love the idea of challenging the listeners to find a cause and to vote with their dollars. I say this quite often on my show as well. People don't realize that their silence is implied consent. Noor wrote, love your show. Laverne wrote, Eldon, I love your posts. They make me think and they inspire me. John wrote, love your products. I've been using them for years. Gloria wrote, I'm a registered nurse and mother of a gorgeous eight-year-old boy. Congratulations. I am interested in distributing Intertalk CDs because we have experienced the great benefits with successful children. Please send me the information. Thank you beforehand. Well, you can consider that done, Gloria. Thank you. Loretta wrote, You have helped me more than you will ever know, and I am forever grateful. You truly opened my eyes and my mind, something I truly needed. I am discovering so many new thoughts, possibilities. I feel more at peace. Thank you. And Oren wrote, I love your work and your spirit. You are doing powerful work for the transformation of humanity's psyche. All right. That's all the time we're going to take for letters today. But I do invite you to opine by sending your comments to Eldon. That's E-L-D-O-N at EldonTaylor.com or by joining me on Facebook. And I want to thank all of you for your letters and comments. They truly mean a lot. We truly appreciate your feedback and support. Now to this week's show. Biblical Wisdom and Biblical Myths with Professor Amy Jill Levine. You're going to love this one. I must admit, to my own excitement about today's show, I only wish I had known more about the Bible when I was young. I think many of us are raised with teachings that either state directly or imply the Bible to be the Word of God, and sometimes the literal Word of God. Every Sunday, evangelical preachers take to the pulpit to share Bible teachings with us. And unfortunately, much of what we hear, if you fact check it, is false. I know as a boy, I was raised in a religious environment. And one of the articles of faith stated, quote, we believe the Bible to be true in so far as it is translated correctly. Insofar as it's translated correctly? What exactly does that mean? When you learn that much of the Bible is indeed myth an often borrowed myth from another culture. What does it mean when you learn that the Rosetta Stone revealed that one in three words in the Bible were translated incorrectly? What does it mean to qualify the Bible with a philosophical assertion that it is only a record of Yahweh's intercourse with the Jewish people when you discover that the historical, archaeological, and anthropological data fails to support this assertion? It's easy for young people to become disillusioned, and that's the real challenge. They become disillusioned with religion when the tenets and definitions can be so easily picked apart. An all-good God who created everything suggests a problem. For if God is all-good, then where does evil come from? And an all-powerful God begs many questions, including the problem with Adam and Eve and the first sin. For if God is all-powerful, then why were Adam and Eve given a deficient will? And if God knowingly gave them a deficient will, then whose sin is it anyway? Further, if God is omniscient, all-knowing, then what's this all about anyway? For God knows everything, including what we have done and will do. Are we just God's amusement? And there is this puzzle. How could a God worthy of our worship demand the sacrifice of a son, as with Abraham and Isaac, or take the family of Job in order to win some wager? Well, perhaps our guests today will shed some light on these questions and more. Amy Jill Levine is University Professor of New Testament and Jewish Studies. E. Rhodes and Leona B. Carpenter Professor of New Testament Studies and Professor of Jewish Studies at Vanderbilt Divinity School and College of Arts and Science. She is also Affiliated Professor, Center for the Study of Jewish-Christian Relations, Cambridge, United Kingdom. Her books include The Misunderstood Jew, The Church and the Scandal of Jewish Jesus, The Meaning of the Bible, What the Jewish Scriptures and the Christian Old Testament Can Teach Us, co-authored with Douglas Knight, the New Testament, Methods and Meanings, co-authored with Warren Carter, and the 13-volume edited, Feminist Companions to the New Testament and Early Christian Writing. Her most recent volume is Short Stories by Jesus, the Enigmatic Parables of a Controversial Rabbi. What a read that one is. Dr. DeVille, is also co-editor of the Jewish Annotated New Testament. She has recorded three sets of lectures for the Teaching Company's Great Lecture Series. Holding the B.A. from Smith College and the M.A. and Ph.D. from Duke University, she also has honorary doctorates from the University of Richmond, the Episcopal Theological Seminaries of the Southwest, the University of South Carolina Upstate, Drury University and Christian Theological Seminary. You know... I hope you understand we have a very qualified guest today. She describes herself as a Yankee Jewish feminist, and that ought to be interesting to explore. Now, you hear commercials on this program for the teaching company, and I'm one of their customers. My wife and I have many of their courses, and today's guest is one of my favorites. Her course on the Old Testament led to today's invitation to join us, So on that, let's get her in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Professor Amy Jill Levine. Oh, it's
3: my pleasure to be with you.
1: Oh, good. You know, I I, I must tell you, uh, again, I really enjoyed your great courses. But before we get into your work, we like to establish three things in our interviews. Who is the messengers? What is the message? And how do we use it? So to that end, please tell us about yourself. What were you like as a youngster? Were you liked in school? <laughs> Did you get involved in athletics of any kind? Was religion an important part of your upbringing? How do you see yourself today when you look back at yourself as a
4: child?
3: Um, on the whole, I think I had a, a happy and, and blessed childhood um, I'm an only child. My, my mother was 44 when I was born, so I was, as, as they say, a quite happy accident. Um, my parents clearly loved me, and they clearly loved each other, which set up a very nice model. Uh, we lived with my grandmother, so uh, we had three generations of Jewish women in the family. Uh, how we did not kill each other, I think, is a minor miracle in and of itself. <laughs> Uh, my Dad died when I was quite young, um, and then that 's in part I think what what challenged my own feminist senses. Um, I watched my mother having to make her way in the world and what happens what happens to you in the early 1970s if you become a widow whose friends stay with you what you now need to learn that you did not know before uh, how you become both both mother and father to a child. Um, I played tennis, if that helps, which I was pretty good, and I played basketball, which I was pretty awful. Uh, And uh, (laughs) I basically spent my childhood, I think, asking questions. When I was a kid, I'd come home from school, and the first thing my mother would say to me is, did you ask any good questions?
1: You're getting soft. Will you put the receiver closer to your mouth, please, Professor?
3: When I was a child, um, and I would come home from school, my mother would say to me, did you ask any good questions today? Um, so I was a child whose curiosity was encouraged, uh, and as my mom said, if if her little girl was interested in something, she would figure out some way to, uh, to work with that interest and encourage me.
1: Okay. Uh, so when you look back on your childhood, it was just a happy, great model for you, and I assume with three Jewish women in the family, you were highly engaged in religious activities.
3: Um, Not so much. Uh, I went to Hebrew school, as did everyone else uh, within that particular generation. So I had Hebrew school two days a week. Uh, I went to services on Saturday morning. Uh, I think my mom would drop me off rather than actually attend herself, so this was what kids did. I went to Sunday school on Sunday morning, and my mother played bridge while I was in Sunday school. After my father died, when I was 13, my mother became much more invested in religion. Uh, So she would go to the synagogue to say Kaddish, the memorial prayer from my father, and I would go with her. Uh, The household did not keep kosher. Um, My father's idea of how, how best to spend the Sabbath Friday evening was with lobster, which is partly kosher. But he said you should celebrate the Sabbath with the best that you've got, which in his view was. I think in terms of religion, uh, the household was religious uh, in an intellectual way. Uh, In the evenings, uh, my father would read to me from the old, I think it was 1909, Jewish encyclopedia. So I learned about Austria up until about 1905. had had no idea what happened after that. Um, So I was brought up as a proud Jew, but not terribly much as a practicing one.
0: Okay.
1: Okay. Let's do this. Today I want to speak to you about a variety of subjects that you're genuinely an expert on. But let's begin with the influence that misunderstanding the Bible can have, especially to those who see the book as a history book or the literal word. You heard the setup piece. Do you encounter many young people today have become disillusioned with organized religion because of the literal and or the misunderstood nature of the Bible?
3: Mm. Um, I encounter a lot of young people, and actually quite a number of people who are no longer so young, who suddenly discover that there's more to the Bible than what they had had heard in church or what they had heard in their Sunday school. Um, And not only are they discouraged, they're actually resentful, and they wonder why their clergy, who actually know all the historical background and know about discrepancies in the text, they wonder why the clergy kept that from them. Uh, So I think today we'd be much better off in terms of understanding the Bible if clergy were honest with their congregations and stopped treating the congregations like a flock of sheep and treated them more like a bunch of adults.
1: I can't tell you the number of people in my career that I have met who have been alienated from religion because of, um, you know, the many what shall we say, incongruent stories that arise as a result of the Bible and or definitions of God. Um, and, And they defect from religion and then seek out whatever they can find that for all intent and purposes gives them spiritual relief, that's how I see it, but avoids organized religion. You don't find that to be the instance?
3: Um, That's certainly the case with a good many people. So we have, um, as you suggest, folks who walk around saying, I'm spiritual but not religious, and that really means I have very little religious community and everything is about me personally and my personal relationship with whatever I consider to be that ultimate reality. The problem with people who become spiritual but not religious is not only do they lack community, uh, they tend to lack, and not always but often, anybody against whom they can uh, make a religious argument. So there's nobody questioning their own views. And what I find particularly disturbing is they're not involved in any of the justice work that a lot of organized religion is. So if we do look to who's doing good deeds in the world, you know, a flood happens, a storm happens, an earthquake happens, it's usually religious communities on the front line. The people who are spiritual but not religious don't have that access to the justice work.
1: I'm forced to ask you about uh, in the New Age community, there is a lot of exactly what you described, and it tends to breed a form of, of narcissism, a form of just total selfishness you know Uh, i was created perfectly in god's image and everything is mine and as the book the secret might say all i have to do is is will it and and it comes to me it's a matter of belief etc do you have a comment on that you'd like to make
3: um i think it's a loss um and when people particularly people who grew up in in a religious community Christian, Jewish, Muslim, Buddhist, whatever, uh, people who opt out, usually opt out, without actually having explored the resources of their own tradition. So they're giving up what they don't know. Um, and, and and that loss, I think, is sad. Uh, you are correct in terms of some of that narcissism. Um, I think religion in general, um, there's an old saying that religion is, is engaged to um, to help us not only learn who we are, but it's there to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. And I think this narcissism just simply uh, winds up comforting and provides no challenge, no provocation, and tends not to make us uh, feel like maybe we should be a little bit better than we already are. Maybe we should listen to other opinions. Maybe we should get other readings. Maybe we should challenge ourselves rather than just sit there in a self-congratulatory mode.
1: I love that afflict the comfortable. All right, we have a hard break coming up. We're going to go to the break when we come back. I want to get more deeply into your, yours, general specialty that attracted me to you—the Old Testament. We're speaking with Professor Amy Jill Levine about her life, work, books, and teaching company courses. Professor Levine is indeed prolific, so be sure to check out her website. Uh, It's got a very long handle, so we posted it on our radio page. Or you can just Google her. You'll find hundreds of citations. She's everywhere. Be sure also to check out her books at Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Okay, remember to join Ravinder and Andrea in the chat room. You can do that by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Do stay tuned. We'll be right back.
4: You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor.
5: It's not your fault until you know better. Self-defeating, self-sabotaging thoughts can be eliminated. It may be difficult to accept, but the fact is magnetic resonance imaging shows us that your subconscious mind makes almost all of your decisions, while your conscious mind makes up reasons to explain your choices. In order to rid yourself of those self-defeating thoughts and ideas, the fear and doubt that can hold you back, you must change the way you talk to yourself. Nothing does this faster or better than our patented InnerTalk technology. Scientifically proven effective in the most rigorous of scientific studies, InnerTalk has repeatedly been demonstrated effective. Change has never been easier. Now you can improve your life almost automatically by rewriting the scripts hidden away in your subconscious. Guaranteed to work. No reason to wait. So don't delay. Go to InnerTalk.com today.
0: Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor.
1: Welcome back. If you're just joining us, we're chatting with Professor Amy Jill Levine about her life, work, books, and teaching company courses. Now we ask our guests for three pieces of music, three of their favorites, music that has some truly special significance, real meaning to them. Music impacts us all in many ways. It can awaken memories and has even restored consciousness to coma patients. Music affects our attention, memory performance, and our choices in music have been linked to the big five personality traits. Openness to experience, agreeableness, extroversion, neuroticism, and conscientiousness. So there is a good deal of self-disclosure present in the selection of one's favorite music. Okay, Professor, we just played Somewhere Beyond the Sea, sung by Bobby Darin. And I'm still smiling
3: one, after listening to it.
1: <laughs> Why is this one special to you, and how does it tell us about who you are?
3: <laughs> um, I like the big band sound, and I like ballroom dancing. In fact, I think ballroom dancing is a fabulous exercise for feminists, because I have to let my partner lead, and that's counterintuitive. Um, <laughs> I, 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 like the, I like the orchestration. Uh, the voice is free to do what it wants to do, but there's still a, a steadiness in the beat behind. Uh, to play this type of music is actually very difficult, because you have to count. Uh, and I really appreciate the professionalism of what's going on underneath Bobby Darren's voice. And I like the lyrics, a sense of a quest, and then a recognition that, that somehow at the end of the quest, there is what you want, and it is achievable. Uh, if miraculous, so everything for this song just comes together for me.
1: You really gave that some thought, didn't you?
3: I did. I, I you know, I I did music as a child. Um, I played the piano. Both of my kids play the violin, and I've always been surrounded by music. Big band just really does it for me.
1: Wonderful, Tommy Dorsey. That's my favorite big band. All right, it's popular today among many to see organized religion as a mechanism designed to control through fear, fear of rejection, fear of damnation. I have to ask you, how much truth is there in the idea that organized religions are basically propaganda clubs, each with their own exclusive bias or truth, and they're to generate income or control the masses or satisfy an ego and so forth?
3: Um, there's a little bit of that in religion, but there's also a little bit of that in the Boy Scouts and in politics and in Tupperware parties and any sort of organization. <laughs> I mean, because, we're, you know, we're always looking for community, and then what happens is communities get organized. Uh, and there's a part, of a part of human nature that wants that organization to be there. Um, what religion should do is not close one's mind, but open one's mind. Uh, religion should be there to help us ask good questions and then to wrestle with the answers. I think that's actually what the Bible is set up to do. The Bible is not set up, as far as I can tell, to be an answer book, but it's a book that says, here are questions you need to figure out. Here are questions that are worth asking. And if you wind up having different answers, as long as you can remain in community and be civil with each other in discussing those questions and answers, you're actually doing a very good thing
1: you know I, was, I certainly I mean as you say that I think back I I I had seminary when uh, I was in a high school the seminary building was detached from the high school you'd walk across this little canal this little bridge to get over to the building and I had lots of questions and uh I I I received my grade and it was a, a big F and um You know, I went to my seminary instructor and uh, he basically said, "You, you are a disturbing influence in this class. I ended up having to go to the school board to get the grade that reflected my scores on tests, which was an A. But in getting that grade, I had to agree that I wouldn't go back to seminary again. Now I was this disturbing influence because I had all these questions. And I think it's the failure of people to meet those questions or attempt to address the questions and, in some instances, to explain that there just simply aren't easy answers to some questions that forces a lot of people away from religion. Have you found that to to
3: be true? I would love to have you in my classroom. You know, you're welcome to come back to Divinity School if you want. (laughs) Okay.
1: All right. I promised that uh, before the last break that I was going to ask you about your great course's Old Testament. I have two sons and both have attended a Jesuit high school. Both have rejected religion and seriously doubt God, at least the God of the Bible, as they've been exposed to it. I've discussed your work with both. So let's begin with the beginning. In the beginning, the Bible tells us two different stories of creation with two entirely different gods, one who remains with mankind and one who does not. Please unpack these stories and flesh out their mythological intention, as well as the comparison one discovers with other cultures.
3: Uh, well, one can certainly read Genesis 1, and just the first few verses of Genesis 2, is by one author with one type of God, who creates from a distance, who creates by word, who looks down at the creation and perceives that it's all good and then rests on the Sabbath. And then we have the other creation where God is in the muck creating Adam out of the clay, out of the dust, creating the animals, and then what resorting to major surgery in order to create Eve. So yes, we can say that these are very different gods, or more productively, we can say that the Bible immediately tells us that different people will have different ways of understanding the divine. Uh, and that no one particular view is entirely correct, and that we could learn something from each other. And both passages in Genesis, whether it's chapter 1 or the Eden story, which is chapter 2 and 3, both have strong parallels with other ancient Near Eastern mythologies. And this tells us that people in general had various views of the divine and various views of how how we were created. And what we can do, if we're Jewish or Christian, and we're heir to that biblical tradition, and say, oh, here's how my ancestors understood the divine, understood our purpose in the world, and here's how their neighbors understood it. I can learn something from my own tradition, and if I really want to know more about my own tradition, I should learn something about theirs so I know what they accepted and what they decided to leave behind. But I don't have to take any of this as literal. Um, I can take it as... Here are different understandings of the divine. Which ones do you like? Which ones do you reject? Which ones do you want to know more about? And then I can read through the Bible to find out how these different images of God play themselves out.
1: So you're suggesting that the Bible should not be viewed in any literal sense, or for that matter, historical sense? Do I get that right?
3: I think the question uh, is overstated, just as it was phrased. Certainly some of the materials in the Bible uh, reflect history. Uh, Jesus, I think, did die on a cross. Um, uh, there was a temple in which people worshipped. So we can mind the text for some history, but we have to be careful to recognize that the book was not the Bible was not put together as a history book. It's a book that has some history in it. The book is put together as the thoughts and the concerns uh, and the traditions of a particular set of people. And it tells us how that set of people, or those sets, because the Bible is really an anthology, how those different authors understood their place in the world and understood their relationship with God. And it turns out that they asked all those really good questions that you are asking. The book of Job asks, how can there be a good God if people suffer? The Psalms say, if God cares about us, why do I feel that I've been abandoned by God? Uh, Jesus asks us, if you think you're in the image and likeness of God, why do you treat your neighbors so poorly? So the book itself is asking those very questions that unfortunately get shut down in too many churches.
1: All right. One of the remarks in the Bible that first troubled me as a youngster was the idea that there was time when gods and demigods fornicated with mortal women. I mean, the actual verse, and I'll quote it here. And it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God, angels, saw the daughters of men that were fair, and they took them, wives of all which they chose. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, had sexual relations with them, that they bear children to them. The same became mighty men, which were of old, men of renown. That's Genesis 6.
3: Uh, right before what do you the say there.
1: about that, Professor? <laughs>
3: um, it looks like a piece of early mythology. It's very similar, if you know Greek mythology, to the yes. stories of the Titans or the various demigods we have, Perseus and Theseus and Hercules. Um, the Bible is a product of its culture um, that people would have thought at the time that there were multiple gods. Not a surprise at all. Um, even when we look at something like the Ten Commandments, uh, one of the the beginning is, you shall have no other gods before me, which suggests that there are lots of them, but this particular covenant community uh, has one God, and their loyalty is due to that one God. So what happens is that human beings... Uh, Our particular views of how we understand God change over time. This should not be surprising. We change over time. So parts of the Bible suggest that there are multiple gods, and parts suggest that there's only one. Um, And then we come into the Christian tradition in which we have only one God, but manifested in three ways. Or we develop farther into, say, the tradition of Latter-day Saints, where the idea of the Trinity changes again. Different people will have different images of God, for me personally, I don't really care what somebody's image of God is. What I really care about is what do they do based on that image. If they understand God in a particular way, how does that way impact their action in the world?
1: Well, I mean, when you, you bring it around to bear that way, uh, what is your take on some of what's going on in the name of God uh, within the Islam community today?
3: Uh, um, I I find the name of God being distorted, and and it's not as if the Islamic community has a lock on that. Uh, There are certain forms of the, you know, uh, the far Christian right that thinks that only Christians should be citizens, and uh, Jews are terrible people, and a lot of these folks are also white supremacists. Uh, There are Buddhists killing Hindus and Muslims. There are Hindus and Muslims fighting it out to this day. So there's been an enormous amount of violence done in the name of religion. Uh, there's also been an enormous amount of good done in the name of religion. Um, I spent a while living in the Philippines with the Mary Knoll sisters, Roman Catholic nuns, and the good that they have done is I, – I, I don't even have words for it because it was so profound and so meaningful to me to watch. And when I said to them, why do you do this? Uh, why do you put your lives on the line? Why have you given up uh, living in uncomfortable quarters to do what you do? And their response is, because the love of Christ compels me to do that. So here again is my issue. How do you understand God? If your understanding of God is God wants you to be gracious and merciful and kind, and you actually do that, terrific. And if your understanding of God means God says I should kill everybody that doesn't believe the way you believe, then I think
1: what we have is a distortion of religion. Or disagree with you violently because you don't believe, as I do, the exclusively fabricated sort of an illusion. I had two Bibles as a young man. One was a very old King James Version, and the other was a newer copy. However, when I compared... The books, they weren't the same. For example, I compared the closing comments in Exodus. One stated, and I paraphrase, and Moses was transfigured. The older version added to that, and we believe this book to be true. Now, I was told that Exodus was the word of God. Uh, as it happens, so obviously I, I was disturbed by this remark, and we believe this book to be true. Now, wait a minute. Where, who is the we? So how often has the biblical text been corrected, rewritten, and the like, and are mistranslated, in your opinion, in history? Or is it <laughs> possible to even give me an answer to that question?
3: I, I can't give you the number. That would be impossible. Um we don't have any original copy of anything. What we've got are copies of copies of copies of copies, and most of those very early copies don't agree. Um, moreover, there's an old Italian proverb that says, every translator a traitor, which I've just messed up because i put it into English, so that whenever we take a word out of one language and put it into another, uh, those all words have, have associations and connotations. So every time we translate, something gets added in that wasn't expected originally, and something drops out that was. So this is why we have multiple translations. Go into any bookstore and look at the Bible shelves, and there are you know the King, the Old King James. Then there's a New Revised King James, and the Revised Standard Version, and the New Revised Standard Version, and the Jerusalem mm-hmm. Bible, and the Contemporary English Version, and that's just the English texts.
4: Right.
1: So as right, we think Mr. of all the languages
3: translated into my god i don't have the number (laughs) so does that mean we can trust it um in the ideal world everybody would know biblical hebrew and koine greek but even there we have to worry about multiple manuscripts so what do we do basically we do the best we can with the text that we have for the synagogue we have a set text based on an early medieval manuscript and we can look at the dead sea scrolls and see distinctions there and say well that's quite interesting but here's the tradition, here's the translation that our particular religion has gone with. So with certain churches in the King James and other churches with whatever is the newest translation on the block.
1: Okay, do you find the same problem to exist with the um, Torah?
3: Because with the Torah we have that stand, standardized medieval translation. At least the Jewish community can agree, if you go from synagogue to synagogue to synagogue, that Torah scroll is going to say exactly the same thing. Where the differences are going to be are in the commentaries. And that would be, for example, the commentary that you have at the end of the book of uh, of Exodus. The difference might be in terms of whether our Bibles have pictures or not. Um, In the synagogue, we're reading from Hebrew from a scroll, and we're chanting it, in the church, that same text is going to be read in English from a book, and uh, in, in, in not in a chant, but just in a read. And if we think about this, and you were talking about music before, when you hear a text chanted, it has a different effect on you than when you simply read it out. When you hear it in Hebrew, it will have a different effect than when we read it in English translation. So not only are we getting different translations, we're getting different effects, different forms of delivery. And all that will give us a different text. So when you say, what Bible are you reading and how are you reading it? The answer has to be multiple.
1: All right. You know, a lot of you know, accounts, if you will, in the Bible have become popular movies. And we've got the story of Noah. And some see the movie and say it's absolutely blasphemous. It just does not bear any resemblance to the biblical account you know we we've had movies on all these stories the tower of babel joshua and the walls of jericho and and, you know the den of lions and on and on and on are these stories well first i guess are they historically factual Uh, which i assume they're not but if they are that's one account and if they're not what is the metaphor? What is what is the, What are the stories designed to tell us? Hmm.
3: Well, we don't have any historical evidence of a universal flood. Um, and in fact, flood stories are told in, in many, many parts of the world, except, for example, in parts of Africa, where drought is the problem rather than flood. Um, in other cases, for some of these biblical movies, the producers will contact biblical scholars and ask us questions like, "What do we know about the rule of the pharaohs in ancient Egypt, so we can do the Exodus story appropriately?" Or, "What do we know about life in first-century Galilee, so we can tell the Christmas story appropriately?" So they're trying for kind of historical background. A lot of these movies remind me of historical novels. Um, you know, where you get some pieces that might have an historical connection. But the rest of it is artistic invention, because the Bible is, in fact, substantially story. And what happens, we are going to retell the story, and we're going to retell it in our own idiom. This is not dissimilar to what happens in churches and sometimes in synagogues, where whoever's giving the sermon will say, this, re- this story reminds me of, and then we have an update. The most recent updates of biblical stories, tapes called the Veggie Tales, where we can get the Bible delivered to us with tomatoes and cucumbers and potatoes. (laughs) Is it bad? It's simply human nature to attempt to make the stories relevant to our own times and our own circumstances. That's what religions do, is they take ancient stories and update them to speak to the needs of the contemporary community. And I think that's actually a pretty good thing.
1: I think one of the more valuable lessons that I took out of your course, by the way, had to do with how you applied literary convention to the nature of understanding the Bible. I think that dovetails into what you were just saying. Explain to us what what this is, and you know, provide us with an example or so from the Old Testament, if you would.
3: Ah, uh, there are a number of literary conventions, and the technical term here would be type C, uh where basically the story has the same skeletal outline and then different elements added in. I mean, the easiest way of thinking about this is the old game of Mr. Potato Head, where everybody has the potato, so you know what that is, and then you just add on different eyes and different ears. So there's a convention in which a man meets a woman at a well, and then marriage just ensues. So Abraham's servant meets Rebecca at a well, and she's very active and very strong and very beautiful, uh, and she becomes the wife of Isaac. A little bit later, Isaac's son Jacob meets his cousin Rachel at the well, and she's just dropped dead gorgeous. So he winds up doing all the work and eventually marries her. In the next book of the Bible, Exodus, Moses, uh, on the lamb from Egypt because he's just murdered a taskmaster, lands at a well, and here comes seven daughters of a local priest, and he winds up helping them. And they go home and they say to their dad, we just met this Egyptian, you can tell by the clothes, and he helped us. And dad, who was desperate to marry off his daughter, says, go invite him back home. And the next thing you know, Moses is married to one of those daughters. So by the time we get down to King Saul in First Samuel, we are already primed. You meet a woman at a well, you're going to marry her. And Saul meets a bunch of women at a well, and he asks about is there a seer, a prophet, around because his father has lost his donkeys and he he needs some help. And the women say, oh, yeah, there's a seer down the street, and Saul says, thank you. He doesn't marry the women, and we know at that point, because he doesn't fulfill the convention, that his own kingdom, his own kingship will be aborted. And just to take this in one more iteration, In the Gospel of John, chapter 4, Jesus meets a Samaritan woman at the well. So we see Jewish man, uh, woman at a well. We bet she's going to marry him. Well, it turns out she's been married five times. She's currently living with a man, not her husband. But nevertheless, Jesus goes back to her village with her and winds up converting the Samaritan population. It's yet another play on the theme. Or for those of you who do music, like a variation on the, the theme kind of like all those twinkle, twinkle little star variations right. you do at the beginning of Suzuki. And Very
1: interesting. All right, we have a hard break, so I'm, I'm going to have you pause right there. I have another couple of questions on that, but we'll get them after the break. If you would like to know more about Professor Amy Jill Levine and her work, visit her website. It is posted on a radio page, or again, just Google her. Now, we have a video for you during the break of Professor Levine discussing the value of the parables in the Bible, and we'll be talking with her about that in the next hour. You can check it out by joining the chat room. Just go to ProvocativeEnlightenment.com forward slash chat. We'll be right back.
4: You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor.
5: The praise for Eldon Taylor's New York Times bestselling book, Choices and Illusions, continues to mount. John Edwards said this about choices. Read this book. We are living at a time when people are searching for answers to fundamental questions in their lives. This book can be, if applied, a roadmap to personal enlightenment and empowerment. More important, it helps you see that you can manifest change. Joan Borisenko had this to say. Choices and Illusions is a smart, practical book by a grand master of the mind. If you want to get out of the box of your own thinking and touch a greater reality, Eldon Taylor can show you how. Lindsay Wagner had this to say, Enjoy the journey. I did. Get your copy today online or at fine bookstores everywhere.
0: Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor.
4: I'm always true to you, darling, in my way. There's an oil man known as Tex who is keen to give me checks. And these checks, I fear, mean that sex is here to stay.
1: Welcome back. If you're just joining us, we are speaking with Professor Amy Jill Levine about her life, work, books, and teaching comedy courses. Now, Professor, we just played your second musical choice, Cole Porter's Always True to You, performed by Amy Spanker. So please tell us, why is this one special to you?
3: (laughs) Um, It's a song from the musical Kiss Me Kate. Uh, by Cole Porter. And I think Cole Porter is a genius in terms of how he works with the combination of music and words. We were just talking about literary conventions and plays on a theme. And what Porter can do, probably better than most, perhaps better than any, is take a particular form and put words to it, rhymes that are unexpected, beats that are unexpected. Uh, and it 's just the delight it, the delightfulness by which he uses the English language and with which he can put that language to music it 's just a marvelous combination
1: always true to you in my own way i couldn't, yeah I totally agree listen while we 're on convention. I wanted to explore that a bit more because sometimes it is the nature of convention that can give rise to how you can make uh, Comedic equivalence. know, you tell a story that you make a comparison to Mel Brooks's Blazing Saddles in your course about. Share that with everyone, please.
3: <laughs> you know what? I think it would be better if you did it because I, I think it works better in a male voice here. So you can do
1: this. No, 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 no. I want you no, to no, do no. it. You're the no, guest. No. Bring it on. No, no, what are you going to do? You're going to make everybody have to go get the course to hear this story?
3: I think that's actually not a bad move as a matter of fact
1: <laughs> all right, well then let's do this. Share with me a comedic equivalent of convention. How could I use convention in order to take the expected and turn it into the unexpected and And uh, give me your own example. <laughs>
3: Um, Pretty much every parody or satire that we've ever seen, of which Blazing Saddles is is a marvelous example, um, works because we know what to expect, because we, we have that familiarity. And the biblical authors were well aware that good storytelling means that you have something that's familiar, and then you take that thing that's familiar and you make it seem somehow strange or wonderful or new again. So just as Blazing Saddles is a play on the various westerns with which we were besieged, particularly for those of us who watched, say, television in the 1960s, Rawhide and Bonanza and Big Valley. So the biblical text itself tends to make comedic some of, some of those conventions. Um, and it will even play on notions of what we think of regarding God. So God winds up doing surprising things. If our conventional view of God, and that's how you began the show, with that conventional view of God, is omniscient and omnipotent and good and and just perfect, then the Bible says, let's give you some play on those things. We'll give you a God who makes bets with Satan. That's the book of Job. Or we'll give you a God who weeps along with you in terms of lamentation and regrets your sins. And we find that in the Psalms and the Prophets. Although in the New Testament we have the verse, Jesus wept, in post-biblical Judaism we have ac- examples of God laughing with us, particularly when we defeat God in arguing over Torah. So the Bible has these various amusing parts. The book of Ruth is just a wonderfully amusing text, because Ruth starts out as a Moabite, and we think, oh, we know about those Moabites. They're descended from incest, from the uh, Lot's daughters getting him drunk and then having sex with him. And what does Ruth do? She waits in Chapter 3 until her intended Boaz is drunk on the threshing floor, and she goes and she uncovers his feet. And to find out what that technically means, you have to listen to the tape because I'm not sure about your sensors. But she uncovers his feet, and he wakes up and says, Who are you? And she says, I'm Ruth. Spread your cloak over me because you are next of kin. And anybody who knows that story about Lot and his daughters is going to see a kind of amusing but nevertheless touching and loving and potentially romantic replay
1: Okay, let me ask you this This is my own little observation, but we have this convention: you go to the well and you find your wife mm-hmm. if you know so if you're down at the well and you find a woman, that's you know we get to expect that that's a wife. Is it possible that when Jesus finds well we'll be gracious and call her a serial monogamist, that that isn't a conventional switch leading us to see this uh, entire story differently? I mean... um, I guess, as opposed to seeing as then Jesus accompanied her back and converted, is there a possibility there's another meaning there?
3: Sure. Um, The Gospel of John functions on multiple levels. Um, So we were talking before about how words mean different things. Um, When Jesus and Nicodemus in the previous chapter, I'm now in John chapter 3, Jesus says to Nicodemus, you have to be born, and the Greek term is anothen, and a note then in Greek can mean again, but it can also mean anew or it can mean from above. And Nicodemus takes it very literally. What? I have to be born again. You know, I mean, I have to crawl back into my mother's womb. How does that work? And Jesus is thinking on a higher plane. When he meets ne- in the next chapter the Samaritan woman at the well, they start talking about living water. Well, the expression living water in both Greek and in underlying Hebrew. It can also mean just running water, water in a stream as a living water, as opposed to water in a pond. Jesus is trying to take her beyond the literal level to something transcendent, trans metaphoric, uh, beyond what her, ma- her imagination is prepared to deal with. And she eventually works with him until she comes to function on his level, and at that point she becomes an evangelist. So John sets us up with something very, very familiar. And just when we think we understand what's going on, it's like he jump shifts into another realm of being, another way of understanding language. And the effect of the Gospel of John overall should be that way, so that after reading John with its various conventions, all of which are played upon, all of which are shattered, we begin to see our own world, ideally, as a little bit more profound, a little bit more complex, a little bit more transcendent than just that quotidian, everyday, day-to-day life in which we think we exist.
1: All right. Let's move along to something that I know many of our listeners have an interest in, because there are a number of uh, uh, prominent authors and radio hosts today that uh, practice what we might call divinination. Um, there are several forms of divination that are found in the Bible. Uh, where, you know, and, and by divination, I you know, I mean, it, technically, I guess I'm going, to, I'm going to turn this into a question as opposed to a statement. Technically, is divination necessarily speaking divine to human, or can it not also include speaking to someone who has passed um, and, and flesh out the, the methods of divination that are popular in the Bible for us, please?
3: Sure. Um, the Bible has multiple ways of trying to access divine will um, or trying to predict the future or trying to tell us what we should do next. Uh, the, the very popular Urim and Tumim, which are actually forms of dice, would be one example. Watching how an arrow flies. Uh, opening up a sacrificial animal and looking at the liver its called herusification. Uh, attempting to interpret dreams, and we see Joseph doing that. Um, we also have in the Bible the idea that you could call up spirits of the dead, uh, and this is where we get the story of the so-called witch of Endor who calls up the spirit of Samuel. So we're, I, it might be part of human nature because this is cross-cultural. We always want signs of the future. This is why so many people read their horoscopes in the morning. Um, or we take a sign, I found a penny, I'm going to have good luck all day. Or... Um, I saw a rainbow and, therefore, my future will hold gold or a good fortune in it. So we're always doing that. Um, Sometimes dreams can be helpful, and they can actually give us inclinations as to what we're actually thinking. Uh, Sometimes if a particular image strikes us or a sound strikes us and it reminds us, oh, I should have done that, or, oh, that reminds me of someone who's passed, it might actually compel us to act in a different way. And that's not a bad thing. But with all this concern for predicting the future and getting certainty, that's because we feel uncertain in the present. And I think part of that might also be a loss on our part. We lack a sense of confidence. Uh, we lack the ability to speak to people who might actually be able to help us in certain things and get the help that we need. Um, we lack uh the ability to research what we need to know so we rely on luck rather than work. Um, I think if we had a little bit more self-confidence and a little stronger work ethic, we'd be a little less concerned for issues of divination. So instead of getting messages from the supernatural, we might be better off trying to get messages that are already deep down buried in our own heart and in our own soul. Okay, Then now
1: obviously with divination popular in the Bible... What What is the quote in Leviticus all about? Do not turn to mediums or necromancers. Do not seek them out and so make yourself unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. What What, what is that all about?
3: Well, um, we already have the medium, the so-called witch of Endor, um, and mediums mediate between the spirits of the dead and humanity, and, and that's basically what necromancers do. Uh, necrophilia, necrology deals with the dead. Um The concern is, let the dead rest in peace. They've they've done what they need to do, and it is not their job to tell us what to do now. Moreover, in the ancient world, at least for the people who are writing Leviticus, uh, necromancy and uh, various other forms of divination were associated with other gods. Uh, We might be familiar today, for example, with the oracle at Delphi, the most popular, the the Greek um, oracle. If you want to get a message from God, God will give us that message. God doesn't need these special tools by which uh, we can use uh, technology to attempt to determine the will of God. And God from the Bible doesn't want us going to other gods.
1: Okay, well now, one of the criticisms of, uh, what should we say, mediumship today, uh, whether it be um, someone who... Is psychic, I'll put that word in quotation marks, or it be an official medium uh, goes beyond you know charges of are they making it up and fraud and da 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 da? Some of the criticisms turn to the Bible and turn to this quote out of Leviticus. Is it in your understanding of the biblical literature? Is it what shall we say? A sin wrong? for people today to practice precognitive or psychic or whatever you want to call it, mediumship?
3: It depends upon how you determine whether the Bible is relevant for you today and what parts of that Bible are relevant. Moreover, and here's pro- the problem of talking about sin, what sin to one person is not sin to somebody else for some religious communities to get remarried after you've you've been divorced is a sin, to get divorced is a sin. So for me as a biblicist, it's not my my job to run around with little stones in my pocket, throwing them at people who I think are sinful. I'd run out of stones very, very quickly. (laughs) Um, My job as a biblicist is to say, what did people in the ancient world think about this, at which point they would have said, yes, if you're holding a seance that that seems contrary to Leviticus. Uh, How has that text been interpreted over time? and then who's interpreting that text today and for what reason. For the most part, the laws that we find in Leviticus are no longer applicable to people who call themselves Christians because those laws weren't written for the Gentile church. They were written for the ancient Israelite community. And when it comes to Judaism, I can't simply look at Leviticus to understand Jews today. I have to go to the Mishnah and the Talmud and later Jewish practice. So even when we say the Bible says it, We're already looking at a very narrow group of who claims that particular verse to be sinful. For me, my major question is, if you're going to run a seance, uh, are you hurting people? Are you misleading them? Are you giving them false hope? In other words, are you not treating your neighbor as you should? And if you're not treating your neighbor as you should, by definition, that's a sin.
1: Okay, well... (laughs) we come right back to uh a lot of the biblical material as i take it from you then for all intent and purposes is it, it it's only relevant to us not as the word of god but so far as it guides us to be better human beings
3: it's that yes and it's also more than that it guides us to be better human beings Uh, in terms of how we might act with one another. But it also tells us something about our past. And if we don't know our past, as as the old saying goes, then we're bound to repeat it. Uh, It tells us what happens when we engage in violence, and it shows us that violence begets violence. It tells us how we understood God in antiquity, and then it provides a challenge to us. How do we understand God today? It allows us to ask good questions, and that's not a bad thing. It shows us how we connect with our neighbors, what parts of our neighbor's stories we accept and what parts they, we reject, and why. It provides a touchstone for particular communities like the, um, like the American Constitution provides a touchstone for U.S. citizens. But just as we're still debating today, what the Constitution says and what it means and how we actualize it, which is what keeps all these lawyers in business and politicians. Mm -hmm. So the Bible allows us to stay within community, but nevertheless debate what it means and how to actualize it. So if we think about uh, the documents of the founding fathers of the United States as important and as grounding for us, but not simply that's it, there's got to be more, then we can look at the Bible as important and grounding for us. But at the same time, we realize there has to be more.
1: What a wonderful definition. What a wonderful perspective. All right, I'm going to ask you one more question out of the Old Testament. Well, don't hold me to that. Sometimes questions just fly in. But there are many today who are convinced that reincarnation is real. And I've spoken with biblical scholars who insist that the references to reincarnation were intentionally removed during the Third Ecumenical Council. Despite this effort, you know, a number of verses remain that could easily refer to reincarnation, such as when Elijah returns as John the Baptist. Mm-hmm. So, two-part question, Professor. Did the ancient Jewish people believe in reincarnation, and is it true that there were deliberate efforts undertaken to eliminate it from the Bible?
3: <laughs> um, let's take each part of your question separately. Uh, did some people believe in like reincarnation or what we might call transmigration of souls? Exactly the, the example you gave points to the idea that they did. Sure. Um, that uh, John the Baptist was somehow uh, Elijah returned. Um, or even when Herod Antipas hears about Jesus, he wonders if somehow Jesus is John the Baptist returned. So could they have believed in transmigration of souls? Sure. Because at the time of Jesus, there wasn't any party line on exactly what everybody believed. Some people believed in resurrection of the dead, which means fleshly, bodily resurrection. You come back in the body, you die in, except it's apparently a new and improved body. Uh, Some people believed in immortality of the soul, that you would shine like the stars in heaven. Um, Others believed in uh, simply dead was dead, and that was it. And you lived on through your reputation and your children and your grandchildren. Judaism eventually settles down to the idea of resurrection of the dead until the 19th century when the reform movement decided not so much. Um, so could they have believed in resurrection, uh, in, in transmigration of souls? Absolutely. Were references removed? That's a really hard question for historians to answer because the only way we can answer it is on the absence of evidence. Now, as the old saying goes, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. But it's really hard to make an historical argument on the basis of what's not there.
1: So when someone makes that claim, there isn't any documented uh, way for them to produce uh, evidence. There isn't anything that suggests that uh, someone somewhere said uh, we're going to take reincarnation out because it lets people off the hook and makes them think that it's they can come back if they don't get it right and da da da. Nothing of that nature.
3: I'm not aware of anything that would have any type of authority.
1: Okay, I find that now, interesting. Is
3: there something else? I mean, there may well be, but I'm not aware of it.
1: Okay. <clears throat> I, I I'm not, I'm not I'm I'm afraid I'm not gonna let you go on the old testament. Um one of the things that we see a lot of today are channels. And channels tend to in, in some instances indicate that they receive the spirit like a prophet does. That in a way it's it's comparable to um what would you call it? I, I, I suppose a, a form of ecstatic possession. Um, what are your thoughts on that?
3: Uh, it comes in different forms. So, if for example, if one goes to a charismatic church, a Pentecostal church, people will speak in tongues, and then somebody else will have what they would call the gift of interpretation, and right. give a word to the community. Um, And I see absolutely no reason to think that any of this is fake. I mean, it strikes me as entirely sincere. And my friends who were Pentecostals themselves attest to this. Um, Generally, the messages that are given are um, do good work or congratulations for a job well done. Um, It's nothing about, you know, sell your stock in something or rather invest in in this new thing.
5: Mm -hmm.
3: Um, It's a way that people have of expressing their religiosity. Sometimes we can talk about that today when we say, uh, you know, a speech was inspired or a performance was inspired. Sometimes, even in the classroom myself, um, I have my lecture notes, my lecture outlines, and then it suddenly occurs to me as I'm watching people's faces, oh, here's an example that I can use that will open up this question in a way that they hadn't thought of before. And I have no idea where that example came from. It just pops into my head. And I'd like to think of that as a form of inspiration. So, can I uh, prove that it came from some external source, or am I just really smart and have lots of stuff buried inside of me that is yet to come out and say more smart things? I don't know, but it
1: seems to some,
3: work pretty probably well.
1: Probably some of both. But again, we've <laughs> got another break. You know, when when we get back, I'm going to ask you about Erin Prophet and uh, her mother Elizabeth Claire Prophet the Church of Universal Triumphant, and this whole eschatological mentality. We're glad you tuned in today. We know you have many choices, and we're grateful you chose to join us. We love your feedback, so please join me on Facebook and or drop me an email at eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at com. I love sharing your letters and comments on the show, and that's a great way for you to participate. All right, we'll be right back after paying some bills.
4: You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon
1: Taylor. Hi, I'm Eldon Taylor, and you're listening to Provocative Enlightenment Radio. I'm so glad you could join me as we tackle those tough questions in search of the answers that really matter. But remember, this is a journey we are undertaking together, so I would love to hear your thoughts as well. Please send your comments to Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at EldonTaylor.com. You can also join in the conversation by joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor. That's D-R-E-L-D-O-N-T-A-Y-L-O-R. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. We've been chatting with Professor Amy Jill Levine about religion and the Bible. In this half hour, we will take your calls, so if you have questions, give us a call or advance your comments and questions in our chat room. And remember, I love your feedback, and a great place for that is Facebook, so I invite you to join me there today. All right, Professor, that was not exactly big band sound. We just played... (laughs) Meatloaf performing Paradise by the Dashboard Light. I can't sit still and listen to that music. So tell us, why is this one important to you? And, again, how does it tell us about who you are?
3: Uh, well, first of all, what we got to hear was about half of it because it's actually an extraordinarily long song. It is. What it's what about it does, eight minutes. Yeah, I mean, what it does do, I, I think, extraordinarily well is it takes us through a relationship from... This initial burst of high school love to what happens when uh, you act on uh, your physical instincts rather than let your heart and your head engage together. Um, it's a marvelous combination of different, uh, different types of music. And in the middle of the actual song, um, we get to hear the old New York Yankees announcer Phil Rizzuto uh, calling the plays. And, and I think that's just remarkably clever.
1: All right. We hosted Erin Prophet on this show. Her mother, Elizabeth Clare Prophet, was a New Age minister, a self-proclaimed prophet. And as you know, um, a church will say, Paul is the rock upon which the church is built. Someone else will say, no, it's not Paul that's the rock, it's, uh, prophecy that's the rock. So, Prophet was a prophet and she founded the Summit Lighthouse and the Church Universal Triumphant. She was told of an impending apocalyptic event, so she instructed her followers to build some elaborate shelters and to prepare, which they did, and they spent a fortune doing so. And then when the day came, well, they explained the reason nothing occurred on the basis that their prayers saved the planet and its inhabitants. Please share with us what you believe motivates folks in our modern world to adapt extreme eschatological views.
3: Yes, this extreme eschatology—the end of the world is coming. The Russians are going to attack, which I think was was Elizabeth Clare Prophet's view. Yeah. Um, or uh, uh, at this point, uh, various forms of uh, radical Islam will attack. Or God will simply be fed up with all of us, and the world will have giant earthquakes and floods, and uh, as we're seeing right here now in Nashville, ice storms and whatever. Um, Part of this is a sense of lack of uh, a sense of who we are in the present, a strong sense of hopelessness, a sense that we really want clarity. We want to know exactly what's going to happen. And these various apocalyptic countdowns say, yes, you can be sure that whatever's happening is part of some sort of divine timetable. Nothing has gone wrong. Your future is secure. And if you uh, you minions, you people in the congregation, do what I, your minister, tells you, you will be among the saved. So people don't have to make their own decisions. Decisions are then made for them, and they can take comfort in these various predictions. Now, people have been making these apocalyptic pronouncements, uh, since well before the time of Jesus, and during the time of Jesus, and after the time of Jesus, and today and tomorrow, and they will do so until the world actually finally ends. We can always say, well, this person's about to get it right, but based on the odds, it's highly unlikely.
1: When you, as a biblical scholar now, or for that matter if you'd like, as a member of uh, you know, Jewish faith. When you review the documents, do you see an end-time judgment day uh, of
3: sorts somewhere
1: in the future?
3: Do I see it personally? Um, Yeah. That's not the way my mind works. Um, I'm not particularly interested in doing whatever I do in light of a a future uh, eschatological apocalypse. Um, there's an old Jewish joke that says, if you're planting a tree and you hear that the Messiah is coming, finish planting the tree, because then at least you'll have a tree. So, my sense tends to work along those same lines. I'm not going to live my life in light of some apocalyptic event. I'm going to live my life in the present to try to figure out how I can do the best that I'm doing now. Um. If we wind up blowing ourselves up, I think that will be not because of some divine displeasure, but because technology has gotten away from us, and perhaps some people with very unfortunate religious views think that death and destruction is what they're called to do. It may be that if we have better biblical education, better religious education, better concern for community, and a little less narcissism, and a little less surety and a little more humility, we might be in a better position to be able to live in the world tomorrow and the next day rather than to be worried about blowing ourselves up. I think to hunker down and say, I'm saved and I am withdrawing from the world, is just another way of putting one's head in the sand, and I'd rather be a human being rather than an ostrich.
1: You know, I've always liked Nashville. I may just take you up on your offer and come to one of your classes.
3: Let's uh, move on. Of course, next year, you're more than welcome.
1: Thank you. Let's move on to some of your other interests and research, or at least move away from the Old Testament for a minute. Your most recent book is on the parables of Jesus, and you state that there are four teachings from Jesus that everyone gets wrong. Oh, if I have got it right. There that people think get wrong. Okay, well, let me just ask you about a few then, okay, because that's what I've got down here. How have we got the parable of the prodigal son wrong?
3: Well, um, wrong here, Um, it's it's a strong word. But what typically happens is we read the parable and we think, ah, we are that prodigal son because we are the repentant person and the father in the parable is God, and God will welcome us back no matter what we did, and that's the meaning of the parable, this divine love. Well, that's a great message. It's a terrific message, but it's one that's already encoded through all of Judaism, so we really didn't need a parable to tell us that. Um, What we miss in the parable, which which is much more provocative, and part of that afflicting the comfortable model, is that the parable, the father sees the younger son, throws them a big party, and then everybody thinks that's the end. But the next line of the parable is, the older brother was out in the field, and he heard the noise of music and dancing, and he calls a slave to ask what happened. And the slave said, oh, your brother's come back safe and sound, and Dad killed the fatted calf for him. And the older brother refuses to go in because he gets angry. And people in the church say, oh, that must be the Jews who don't want sinners welcomed, or... the the Jewish church that didn't want Gentiles coming in as if working for a pig farmer turns you into a Gentile. The punch of the parable here is the father had enough time to call the band and the caterer, and he never sought to call his older son. He didn't seek that older son. The parable is prefaced by the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin, where people go out of their way to find what's lost. But it's much easier to pick up a sheep and to pick up a coin than it is to pick up a son who has felt ignored his entire life. If we read the parable as all about repenting and forgiving, we get a good, comforting, nice message. But parables are not designed to comfort. Parables are designed to challenge and to indict and to provoke. So the parable of the prodigal is really the parable of a father who had two sons but ignored the older one and finally realizes that the older one has felt discounted. And now what's he going to do to bring him back into the family?
1: Interesting. All right. Now, the parable of the Good Samaritan, that's a story. I mean, we've actually done research on that. We you know, we had a, a biblical group who read the Good Samaritan, and then we gave them a task to see if they would actually stop and practice it. And if they didn't have any time, if they had to run from one end of the university to another end of the university in order to appear in time, Um, they'd run right by somebody in need. Uh, Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I guess what I want to know, the parable of the Good Samaritan is so foundational to what we think of as a good deed. How on earth did we get that wrong?
3: Again, it's not that we got it wrong in the sense of that's a bad message to take from but it's wrong in the sense of how first century Jews would have understood it. First century Jews, like the rest of us knew, that if somebody's hurt, you're supposed to stop and help. And people, I think, at the time would have been surprised that the priest and the Levite walked by the guy in the ditch. They should have stopped to help, and they had no excuse not to stop. And some of these folks who come in and say, oh, they're worried about touching a corpse, or they're worried about purity, that's not the issue at all. The provocation of this parable is the person who actually stops to help. And we can hear that as soon as we say, good Samaritan. Good Samaritan in the eyes of, in the ears of a first century Jew would have been like saying good enemy, um, good opponent, and we can hear the offensiveness if we say today, he's a good Mexican or he's a good Muslim, as if everyone else is just really awful. Samaritans and Jews in the first century they lived next door to each other and they were enemies. So we might think of um, North and South Korea during the Korean War, North and South Vietnam or for that matter, Yankees and Red Sox fans. They were the enemy. And from the perspective of the fellow in the ditch, he might well be thinking, I'd rather die than acknowledge that one of those people can help me. So what happens today, we imagine that we're the good Samaritan, and we say to ourselves, oh, yes, I would stop to help. People in the first century would have imagined themselves to be the fellow in the ditch and wondered who was going to save me, and then finally had to realize that this person they think is the enemy he's actually the savior
1: interesting interesting you know one of the things that i've often commented uh, in conversations with that seems to by many uh christians i'll put you know um i'll put the onus over there Uh, -hmm. is they fail to understand or to, to accept the idea that Jewish, that that Jesus was a Jewish rabbi. And, you know, what he taught, for all intent and purposes, may have appeared somewhat heretical. Uh, maybe not a lot more than Rabbi Abalafia, but, Mm -hmm. but, in order to understand him, you need to understand the context of the time, and the context in which he would have addressed uh, followers, whether in the synagogue or or on the side of a plain, a, a, a hilltop. Uh, flesh that out for us. Why is it important for us to have the mindset? that is the mindset that would have been appropriate when Jesus delivered his messages.
3: Right. Um, People today can certainly and do certainly pick up the Bible and say, what does this text mean to me? And they get a meaning out of it. And as long as it's a good meaning, terrific. But if we understood the Bible in its own historical context, whether we're looking at the stories of Abraham or David or the stories of Jesus, we get so much more. And the example that I find helpful here, and this may only work for people who are my age and up, um, is the old Rocky and Bullwinkle cartoon. Do you remember that?
1: <laughs> yes, uh, I do. I, I do.
3: remember. I remember watching Rocky and Bullwinkle when I was a kid and thinking it was just really funny because I think a moose and a squirrel, by definition, are funny. And I remember my parents would watch, and they would laugh, too. And every once in a while, they would laugh at something, and I wasn't sure why they were laughing. And when I was in college, I saw Rocky and Bullwinkle again. And it suddenly occurred to me why the bad guys were named Boris and Natasha, because it was the Cold War. And then all these other cultural illusions that I as a child missed came in. Rocky and Bowinkle is fabulous social satire. So think about the parables or the story of Jesus this way. I can just read them as a story about, you know, moose and squirrel. But if I know the cultural background, if I can pick up the allusions, if I can pick up the codes, it's so much more interesting and, indeed, so much more profound. And that's why we need the historical context to understand Jesus. We need to know what he said that was said by other people at the time, where he is anomalous and why. We need to listen closely to everything he says rather than just pick and choose our our great one-liners. And we need to understand him and his followers within a first century Jewish context and that context understood within the broader Roman Empire.
1: Okay, and and I want to ask you about so many more parables, but I just have too many questions for this short period of time. Instead, I'm going to move here first uh, so that I'm sure we get into it. Why is the Bible, why does the Bible, I should say, or our interpretation of the Bible, regard women as something men should look on suspiciously, uh, not listen to their wives, distrust. Uh, wh- why is the woman, and I address this to you not just as a professor, but as the feminist that you state you are, why is that a part of the biblical history?
3: Uh Women are portrayed in a variety of ways, and some are quite dangerous and sneaky, uh, and perhaps even Machiavellian, and some of them are gracious and hospitable and loving and terrific. So there's no singular depiction of women in the Bible any more than there's a singular depiction of men. But very often, as we find, and again cross-culturally, Women who are a little bit suspicious, a little bit tricky, whose motives are unclear, or who might be a little bit dangerous, they make for very good stories. And we can see that in classical Greek literature, and we can see it in classical Indian literature, and so on. So the women remain basically figures of intrigue and mystery and also power. And at the same time, the women may seem a little bit untrustworthy, When women are hearing those stories, women who aren't running the government and aren't included in in some groups that are running the town, women learn, if you don't have official power, here's how you get stuff accomplished. So even if we have a story that looks like it's warning men to be wary of women, that same story is telling women, if you don't have any political authority, here's how you can get accomplished what you need. Each woman is different. And whether we're supposed to avoid listening to our wives, that's Adam, or be blessed because we listen to our wives, that's Abraham. It depends upon the verse you read.:
1: All right. Then why is, uh, why is it so patriarchal? I mean, why, why, why do we have a society built on uh, Christian values where, you, know, men are in charge of everything?
3: Because the world is a patriarchal thing, and for the most part, men have been running it. Uh, The most part, sons have been considered of more value than daughters. Sons, we can put them in the fields; They have greater upper body strength. They will work harder. Women do things that get in the way of their work, like getting pregnant and having babies and whatnot. So their life expectancy is less. And that's just the way it functions in the ancient world, where sons were considered to be more important than daughters. But at the same time in the ancient world, if you were born to one particular family, the royal family, you were considered to be more important than someone born in the slave family. If you were born to a particular ethnic group or a particular nation, you were considered to be more important than somebody on the outside. And what we finally come to realize, at least some of us, is the basic teaching of the Bible that everybody is in the image and likeness of God that everybody, metaphorically speaking, I think, is a child of Adam, uh, that we are all equal, at least in terms of who we should be perceived to be. So men and women, slave and free, Jew and Gentile. If we take that opening verse of Genesis and say we're all children of the same parents and we're all in the image and likeness of God, perhaps then we can finally do away with um, racism and ethnocentrism and sexism and bigotry. And here the Bible actually provides us the guiding lesson by which to do that.
1: All right. We have a little less than two minutes, and I'm going to ask you one more real quick question, and then I want to get some information from you for our listeners how they can get to you but this quick question is behalf on all those animal rights people out there there is an admonishment to be fruitful multiply and subdue the earth in the bible that gives dominion over the land and the beasts to men um mankind and Many interpret that to mean that they can do whatever they want to do to animals. Animals don't have feelings, and they ignore the fact that we we do know they have feelings. The new, you know, science shows us that today. These folks, cling to the interpretation, despite the science, it shows uh, feeling and higher cognitive abilities among human beings. What do you say about that, Professor?
3: Yeah. Um, When God gives humanity dominion over the earth, the point is not, and therefore you can attack the earth and strip mine it and blow up mountains and pollute the waters and do anything you want to it. The dominion here is a stewardship dominion. God also makes it clear that the world belongs to God and we're stewards of it. So in the same way that we should treat each other with respect because we are all in the image and likeness of God, It seems to me that since the earth is God's creation and God created it as good, as Genesis chapter 1 makes clear, then it would be incorrect of us to say we have dominion and we can take what's good and turn it into what is bad. Indeed, we have numerous examples in the Bible where the earth is called upon and responds to God with praise. Or where Jesus says, consider the lilies of the field, they can provide you with lesson and therefore don't mow them down. So unless we're treating the earth as the stewards we should be, we're not following biblical mandate. And the Bible is actually quite clear about concern for agriculture, concern for animals, and the tradition, the Jewish tradition goes on to say even if you are going to slaughter an animal, you do it in a way that should be as painless as possible. Back then, when people raised their own
1: animals. I love it. I wish we could go on, but we're about out of time. And I want to make sure you get the opportunity to tell everyone how they can reach out to you, where they can find you, where they can get your books.
3: (laughs) Books are available on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. They say wherever books are sold. And I would dearly love to see them at Kroger's and Walmart. Uh, But they're not there yet. Um, I am, as you mentioned earlier, uh, available all over the Internet. People can reach me, care of Vanderbilt University. There's a homepage. There's a people finder. They can find me.
1: All right. Thank you for your work and your willingness to share it all with us, Professor Levine. What a pleasure. I'm sorry. We've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank our guest again and all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show and will join us again next week, same time and same place. And do tell your friends. Let's have them join us as well. And remember if you have comments on the show, do please let us know. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember believing in yourself always matters.
0: Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.